next time I see a cop with his gun drawn and he's grabbing an innocent, unarmed black citizen, and then he pumps that citizen with seven bullets into his back at point-blank range, while his three little children, three, five, and eight years old, watch their daddy being executed from the back seat of the car. If I were a witness to this, let me just ask you, don't I have a legal and moral obligation to, say, blow his motherfucking head off? I don't know. I don't know. I'm nonviolent. But what if the cop was killing your daughter right there in front of your eyes? I'm a pacifist. Yeah, so don't don't take this the wrong way. I'm I'm just asking for a friend. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. Welcome back to Rumble. This is Michael Moore, and thank you for joining me on my episode today. On today's episode, well, there's a lot going on this week. Obviously, the Republican convention has been happening, but there's really nothing happening there other than Melania Trump somehow got permission to tear up the Rose Garden and create a whole new Rose Garden. And it's, I, I, I'll see if I can find some pictures here to put up on the, on the site here, the before and after. The before Rose Garden contained a rose planted by every first lady since 1913. And it had these two beautiful crabapple trees with their beautiful blossoms that were planted by Jackie Kennedy. Milani had Jackie's trees ripped out of there, ripped out every single one of the roses from every first lady since 1913 and planted it with some, you know, I was going to make some Slovenian joke here, but I've been to Slovenia. It's a beautiful country. It's an Alpine country. The Alps are there. It's nobody knows that about Slovenia, but it's just a beautiful place. And this looks like some, you know, garden of the gulag 1951. Um, It's just completely ruined. And today they finally, after her speech on uh, on Tuesday night, her Republican convention speech, in the Rose Garden, they admitted that they destroyed the trees and all the roses in the whole garden be- so they could get, the cameras could get a better shot of Melania at the podium giving her speech. And then when she walks away with Trump, they needed to walk down that long, that long, I don't know what it is, deck thing that's on the Rose Garden. It's attached to the White House. And the camera wouldn't have been able to get her, essentially her runway walk 
to go back into the White House. And so they destroyed the Rose Garden for the shot. Now, I know, you, Mike, there's a lot going on this week. Uh, why are you upset about this? I'm not upset about it. I'm just saying it's, well, I don't need to say why. I don't need to actually explain the symbolism of what that is and what it meant. It's the final weeks, my friends, of the destruction of our country, the destruction of our democracy. It's coming to an end, hopefully. But we're not even there yet. And instead, the country continues to be destroyed in other ways. And in this case, this past Sunday, in broad daylight, the police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and one police officer in particular pulled his gun on a black man, unarmed, an unarmed, innocent black man who, we don't have the whole story yet, but apparently there were these two women that were fighting. He had stopped the car, didn't, he was trying to break up the fight. It's kind of a, essentially a, I don't know, good Samaritan. Maybe they were fighting over him. I don't know. We'll know this eventually. Here's how little we know. Five days later, they finally, yesterday, released the name of the cop. Rustin Chesky. That's his name. Rustin, as in Rusty. Rusty. Hey, Rusty. Rusty Chesky. You've seen the video. Jacob Blake wanted to get back in his car. His three kids are in there. They're, they're three, five, and eight years old. He opens the door of the driver's seat. He's not hes not putting up any kind of fight. He doesn't have a weapon. He starts to get into his car. The cop grabs him from behind by the T-shirt, holds him in place, and then fires seven bullets into his back at point-blank range while the children are in the backseat watching this. That cop, Chesky, Rusty, Rusty Chesky, has not been arrested. No charges have been filed. If a black guy had pulled the shirt of a white guy, or say the shirt of a white cop, and put seven bullets in his back, do you think it'd go five days before you found out the name of the, the guy and before he would be arrested? How long do you think it would take a black guy to get arrested in the United States of America for putting seven bullets in the back of somebody else, a white guy, a cop? Yeah, okay, I know. Mike, don't ask questions that you know the answers to. Uh, my friends, you, I'm sure, like me, have gone through these five days after watching that video. You can't get the video out of your head. And now, miraculously, Jacob Blake, the victim, is not dead. But he is, as they say now, he is permanently paralyzed from the waist down. And this cop is home. This cop walks free. Wow. It doesn't stop, does it? And you know what? It's not going to stop. It's not going to stop until we stop it. It will not stop itself. Defund, disarm, demilitarize, and dismiss all racist, gun-loving cops. <sighs> I don't know. You know, I've, I've got my defense fund I've put up. We, we had a goal of 50000 We're I Literally today, we're at 49000 that we've raised. So we're just 1000 away, which means um, sometime in the next few days, we are going to provide this money to the National Lawyers Guild and to some other branches like in Portland and, and elsewhere. So they have the money to help protesters who are being arrested 
while they're protesting, either to provide bail or to provide legal help or to whatever whatever is needed to fight the cops and the DAs, these attorney generals, the ones who are too weak to do what needs to be done to help the movement so that there's justice, so that so that we are going to completely dismantle the way we do police work in this country and rebuild it into something that is about true peacekeeping. And we can do that. And create a system to where the people that are in need of help can get help. You don't need to call a man with a badge and a gun when somebody has a drug problem, an alcohol problem, a mental health problem. But right now, right now, everybody's had it. I've had it. You've had it. And I thought we'd begin today by going directly to the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin. Scene of the crime, scene of the continuing uprising that has been taking place across this country. And my guest uh, from Kenosha uh, is uh, Malika Jabali. Uh, she is an attorney. She's an activist, a writer. You may have read her uh, in uh, Current Affairs, one of my favorite magazines, uh, The Intercept, uh, The Guardian. She, um, she actually wrote an excellent piece uh, for Current Affairs uh, called The Color of Economic Anxiety. Uh, it's about race and, and class in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, after after uh, Malika wrote that, she decided to do a, a, a short film, short doc, called Left Out. And I'll put a link to that here on my podcast site. Um, uh, you can watch it. Anybody can watch it on YouTube. Left Out, this short doc, uh, again, takes Malika to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to focus on the uh, black Midwestern working class, which often gets erased. I can tell you that from personal experience in Flint. Uh, Michigan from Detroit, erased and ignored by the mainstream media. Malika is currently, right now, speaking, we're going to speak to her from uh, Kenosha, and she's there reporting not just on the aftermath of the police shooting of Jacob Blake and the shootings that took place last night on Tuesday night, uh, but also on the underlying issues that led not only to this shooting, but to the rebellion that is now taking place. Welcome, Malika, to Rumble. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, can you just give us a, a brief uh, update on that? We're, we're recording this in the PM of Wednesday. Uh, 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 we post these podcasts usually uh, uh, around uh, midnight. Uh, so this will be up later tonight to those who are listening. Just uh, if you could give us a little background from your perspective of what happened. Um, the context of it happening, and also what happened on last night, on Tuesday night, with the shootings of protesters uh, that took place. The community out here in, in Kenosha, the black community, is about 10% of the city. It is 30 minutes outside of Milwaukee, essentially a suburb of Milwaukee, about an hour north of Chicago. And you can imagine that it is a place where you had white flight from segregated communities in Milwaukee and Chicago and Kenosha. Given the fact that it is, you know, so um, as relatively few people of color relative to the cities near to it, built on a kind of this idea that, you know, this is our space and other folks coming into it 
are outsiders and that could probably explain, this is just me kind of analyzing the situation here, why there were some issues with the Kenosha Police Department um, about 15 years ago, there have been ongoing issues with police, policing and incarceration in Wisconsin in general. And so when Jacob Blake, uh, when a police officer shot him in the back as he reached inside his car, likely to protect his children who were in the car, when he was shot and we saw this, people, uh, black people witnessed this in the neighborhood and the neighborhood where he was, where he was shot, you know, there are a number of black residents who are, are nearby. Uh, it was a response to years of decades, really, of oppressive conditions that black people have been experiencing really throughout the Midwest, specifically in Wisconsin, and particularly in Milwaukee. Milwaukee has the highest black male incarceration rate in the country. Milwaukee has, and I'm talking about Milwaukee just because it's just 30 minutes outside of Kenosha. And there's a lot of kind of interplay between folks who work in Kenosha and, and live in Milwaukee and vice versa. If you talk to the people who are coming out right. uh, to the protests, they have the highest black male incarceration rate. Actually, the whole state does. Uh, the state of, of Wisconsin has the highest unemployment or really jobless rate for black men in the country who are in their like prime, you know, working years. And they're also dying at eight times the rate of white people from COVID, which is also the highest in the country. So arguably Wisconsin is the worst place to live for black Americans. And it competes with Minnesota in these different indicators. So usually those are, you know, one and two, they kind of jockey for a position to depending on the year and, and the outcomes. So the folks who are coming down here, when you walk with them and you listen to them and you march with them, you know, it's, it's folks from Minnesota who kind of see themselves in this community. Folks from Minnesota, folks from uh, Chicago, and they're all, you know, relatively close by. Philando Castile's girlfriend, actually, she was one of the people marching and, and, uh, rallying just yesterday who was trying to uh, raise awareness of the issues that people are going through. And if, if y'all remember, Philando Castile was shot by a police officer where, while his kids were also in the back, a very similar dynamic here. And she was confronting armed vigilantes. So imagine she has to travel miles away from Minnesota, already dealing with her own tragedy to comfort and strengthen and fortify other people who are dealing with a very imminent tragedy to confront people who want to kill them for the sake of protecting poverty, uh, property. So it's a confluence of factors that are happening here, and it's very sobering to witness. What, what happened with the shooting of protesters? The park has been, that's been sort of ground zero for protests against the police officers, against the, the courthouse, and by around 10.30 or so, the police kind of back the protesters out of the park and into Sheridan Road. And Sheridan Road is a very long um, stretch of, of, you know, of a main artery through the city where they barricaded it on, on either side. 
And it's also, it fronts the courthouse, it fronts a lot of government buildings. So they back the protesters onto Sheridan Road and were throwing tear gas. You could hear the, um, these like concussion grenades, a lot, a lot of noise, tear gas that was like filtering up into the room that I was in my, my lips. I could still feel the, you know, the tingling from the tear gas coming onto me, um, that, you know, approaching me and further down the road while they are accosting these, uh, the protesters and telling them to go home and throwing tear gas at them further down the road, you could hear gunshots. I heard it from where I was. They rang into the air and I found out when I woke up exactly what happened. So they pretty much backed the protesters out about seven blocks up from where I am or six blocks up from where I am. Uh, that's when this armed vigilante who people knew they were coming, they were at the park, they were very visible, they were open carrying all afternoon. Protesters were trying to de-escalate, or leaders of the protests were trying to de-escalate with them all day, all evening, rather. Um, and from just piecing together various footage. These are white people we're talking about. What? These are white vigilantes. White yeah. vigilantes. Yes. We don't know if they're white supremacists or whatever, but right. uh, these are white men, essentially, with guns. Yes. Who have shown up. Yes. But from the footage that they've pieced together, you can see there was like an earlier quote unquote confrontation where apparently one of the armed white men threw, uh, not threw, but he aimed a gun at somebody else, one of the protesters protesters aimed a gun at uh, a white protester who was like protesting alongside the other BLM protesters. And apparently he's the one who the killer Kyle Rittenhouse, the ch he shot one protester in the head. He shot another in the chest and he shot someone else where it grazed their arm. The person who was shot in the arm, people are saying, well, he had a gun, like this was self-defense. Well, he actually was alive the two that he killed from the looks of things, they weren't armed. So the self-defense claim really should be for the protesters who in the footage that is most widely distributed, they were running after him because he had just shot one of their friends. He shot one of their friends in the head. They run after him uh, to try and, you know, probably disarm him. And he continues to shoot more. He didn't just shoot at the people who were in front of him. He shot into the crowd multiple times. So that's likely where the other person was shot in the chest and died. He calm, like he runs away. Once he see the, sees the police officers, he's walking calmly towards them in the video. And instead of them apprehending him, you know, I'm still feeling the effects of the tear gas that they threw. They're coming at him with these armored trucks and do nothing. Not only did they do nothing, they told him to get to the side and get out of the street so that they could drive by towards where the protesters were. Wow. So this is how backwards and depraved the system is. And if you look at other footage, you know, Twitter investigators have to be on the job because apparently our mainstream media uh, doesn't want to do kind of the same work, the investigative work of this. If you look at previous video, just a minute before that, the same police department was thanking him and other armed white men for their service. And in the background, you can hear, hear them telling the protesters to go home. So they literally, they say, 
thank you so much, guys. Do you mm. want some water? Wow. So he's hydrated to kill people and run away. I guess he, he needed all that hydration so he could get back to Illinois safely where he's from. And he was apprehended by police in Illinois, but not by the Kenosha Police Department. Oh, when he was apprehended by the police in Illinois, then they must have got their guns out and started firing away, right? Right. Like right. they did to Mr. Blake, right? And, there you and, they, go. And, they, and they shot little Kyle. They shot probably shot him dead, right? There you go. No, no not right, right? So he's um, alive. Oh, yeah, of course. Kyle Rittenhouse is alive, the killer. Is alive and unharmed, untouched. From what I heard, he turned himself in. Yeah. So he had to turn himself in. Correct. To the police, instead of them finding him. Um, so he just glides on by the the same police department who thanked them for their their work, handed them water, and you can see him on on the video. You know, chummy chummy, going over to all the armored vehicles, trying to grab the water um and then he proceeds to mm. go back to his his friends to to protect uh, an empty car dealership is what it looks like because in apparently that's yeah it's more important in a very bizarre press conference uh, earlier today here on wednesday uh it was either the sheriff or the police chief in kenosha stood in front of the microphone and was asked about uh did he want to encourage other people to show up in kenosha with guns to help the police uh, maintain law and order and his answer was well you know if they if they do that then you know i can deputize them but then they're going to have to obey our rules and the constitution of wisconsin says that they'll have to follow you know, the way we want to do it. Whereas if they don't, if they're not deputized, you know, if we don't encourage them to come, but they, you know, come on their own, uh, the implication was they can just show up and do what they want then. They won't be under the auspices of the Kenosha Police or Sheriff's Department. It was really frightening to hear. And then he just kind of snickers. Um, okay. they, they, he, he, he had gone, I don't know, so far into this press conference with no discussion about who put seven bullets into the back of Mr. Blake. No, no discussion of that. No, no discussion of Kyle, of what's happening to Kyle. Nobody's being arrested. It's just, it is disgusting. This is the, this is the congressional district that Paul Ryan uh, used to represent. Um, I know it just from, you know, being from Flint, uh, the both Kenosha and Racine, um, which are you know south of um, uh, Milwaukee, are are factory towns. The big three auto companies have made fac uh, cars there. Have made for years, decades. Um, so this is a very working class uh, area, and um, it's just it has been so uh, bothersome. But now you're there, and um, just before we actually just started. Recording uh, the NBA game that was supposed to start at 4 p.m. between the Milwaukee uh, Bucks and the Orlando Magic, uh, the Orlando the Milwaukee Bucks walked off and boycott boycotted the game, forfeited the game when they're in the middle of the, their playoffs. Uh, you, you, to forfeit, I mean, they couldn't take it. They would, would didn't want to participate. Now I got to tell you, I've heard from other NBA players in the last few days, they don't want to be there now. In Orlando, they don't want to be playing basketball. They've had it. LeBron's had it. Um, 
it was stunning to see this just just before we started here. And I know, you know, it's basketball, it's sports, whatever, but I'm telling you that the NBA and the NBA players have led the way and they have been they have been at the forefront of this with Black Lives Matter and everything that's been going on. You know, so you're so now you're there. Um nightfall is I don't know, um three hours away, maybe. Um yeah. What is, what's the mood and what are people talking about doing? What is the movement uh, planning uh, to do tonight? Because, you know, we've had these protests um, by the hundreds of thousands. If you combine it all in the, since May 25th by the millions. Um, and we so far have, have, it's not that the people have, you know, there have been maybe a half dozen incidents of white supremacist shooting and, and killing uh, uh, usually um, African-Americans, but um, but it hasn't been a thing, if you know what I'm saying. It, uh, in fact, in Portland, which has been, which has been the, the place that's really heated up in the last uh, month or so, even though they've been doing it since May too, uh, even there, there hasn't been this kind of white violence um, against uh, protesters. So, you know, I'm just now speaking as an individual and a human being uh, that I am worried about you and everybody else there tonight uh, in Kenosha. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying back off one inch, but um, what is the plan here so that uh, voices can be heard, demands can be made of the prosecutor and of the police department. Um, but, 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 nobody gets killed. Right. And I, and I realize I can't do much about that because I'm, I'm, I'm essentially asking the white supremacists who are not listening to this <laughs> to not kill anybody. So, so what is the plan to protect our people, our lives, the protest movement, et cetera? Right. It's going to be hard to tell, I think until maybe a little bit later in the evening, the typical, agenda has been there's some sort of march a few hours um, or hour or so before a nightfall and it ends at this park that is uh, about a block away from me i'm moving uh so i could just see and there's usually a rally there in the very late afternoon early morning i don't see anyone gathered there this morning, so, um, or this afternoon rather. So I, it's hard, it's really hard, hard to tell because I think at this point, it, this kind of violence radicalizes people more. It kind of does the opposite effect of what um, politicians or some advocates may think or, or want, or the vigilantes may want, but I can't see this group backing down necessarily from this, I think. And, and by, by not backing down, I mean, I think they're going to continue to demonstrate, continue to protest because they had lines, you know, hundreds of police officers and armored trucks, and they got threatened multiple times from the, uh, the PA system that was coming out of the, you know, the speaker that was coming out of these armored vehicles last night that, you know, you have to disperse, you have to go home. And even though they pushed them out of the park, they continue to, to protest as it is their right to do when somebody gets 
shot in the back seven or, or eight times without any sort of repercussion, um, any sort of discipline or consequences for the officer. So I don't see them backing down from that. I got here Monday morning. And so after I heard about the protest Sunday night, so they've been going strong for the past three or four days. And I can't imagine it really slowing down from there. But unfortunately, um, they have been left with no, no choice, really, because most of the, the vast majority of, of these protesters are not armed with, with guns at all. You know, they're marching peacefully through the street. They're finding whatever they can. You know, it reminds, reminds me of the Gaza Strip uh, in Palestine where they're, you know, throwing rocks at a courthouse. They're throwing bottles, whatever they can find. Uh, they aren't coming here with this idea of initiating violence. But people have a right to self-defense. We all know the facts. We all know what happened. We all saw the video. We all have eyes. Um, so it, um, um, and I think we're all, deeply affected by it on some sort of level. But um, I think, and why I wanted to talk to you today is because I know that you've been there a number of times in Wisconsin, you've written about it, you've made a short film about it, and, um, and that you could help us provide some context to this. So, so provide the context. How, how, do, how do these white officers, they're there less than three minutes when they come to what apparently uh, Blake was uh, trying to break up a, a fight between um, two women and uh, pulled over. He had his kids in the back seat. Uh, the police show up. Nobody really bothers to figure out what happened. Nobody bothers to ask maybe that Jacob Blake might have been uh, acting as a good Samaritan. No, none of that. He's black. Um, he wants nothing to do with them. He's worried about his kids. He goes back to open his car door. And then we see what happens. Uh, how do fellow human beings bring themselves to he, the, the cop who did it, grabbed him by his T-shirt so he couldn't move, held him with one hand, put the gun to his back and fired seven bullets with the other hand. That just doesn't happen by accident. That kind of incident doesn't just fall out of the sky. That There's something behind that. There's something in our American our American way that allows that to happen on Sunday and allows it to happen over and over and over and over and over again. And um, yes, everyone is fed up with it. And yes, we have got to stop this now. I don't want a commission. I don't want any of this shit. I want this stopped. But, but I also know that it operates out of a greater context of, of, of what we've allowed to happen in terms of where we put our poor people, where, where the racial lines that we draw, the Flint, Michigans, the Kenosha, Wisconsin's, the East St. Louis, Illinois, the Gary, Indiana's Watts and Philly and every place else. Um, just speak to that because I think that's, that's personally what I wanted to hear from you. And, and, uh, uh, the other, the facts and everything else, we, we know we, we, it's going to be gone over and over and over again. But what is not getting discussed on the cable news channels, on the networks, uh, just about any place else is there's a, we got the who, we got the what, we got the where, we got the when, and we got the how. The five, the six questions of journalism, but we don't have the why. 
So fill that big blank in for us, Malika. Yeah, I think the um, the primary thing we can think about, the more obvious one, is the persistence of white supremacy in policing and incarceration in Wisconsin. For decades, uh, I would actually say probably a century of policing in Wisconsin, uh, in Milwaukee at least, there have been um, very reactionary ranks from the top down, from the uh, police chiefs of the city who allowed these quote unquote justifiable homicides to explain the killing of black men. This is as far back as the 40s and, and 1950s when black people were first migrating into the region from the deep South, you know, they're trying to escape this racial caste system in the South and come to the racial terrorism of Northern uh, towns that were still very segregated. So there is that history of racial, very, you know, radical terrorism coming from police departments in 1968 or actually 1967, there were as there was a, another large uprising in Milwaukee because people were protesting the the housing conditions. It was a very segregated town then. It's a very segregated town now. And through their protesting, police officers surveilled. These was like the NAACP. They would surveil them relentlessly and threaten their lives. And so this is out in the open. They called them the Goon Squad. It was sanctioned. It was welcome. Uh, they did that to terrorize Black people for simply arguing for their rights to have fair housing, the same way that they are arguing for their rights to just have their lives matter. The same kind of uh, malice and recklessness and uh, lack of any sort of, of humanity for these families is deeply embedded in certain white supremacist factions within the police departments in the Milwaukee area, including in Kenosha. So that kind of police terrorism allows for Wisconsin, again, to have the highest incarceration rate for black men in the country. And it's been like that for quite a while now. For a, a state that only has 10% black men, like that is the life that they have to endure on a regular basis. But underlying that, you also have a economic system. You have a capitalist system where corporations were encouraged to, de, uh, to go offshore, de-industrialize a lot of these towns, as you mentioned before. But instead of replacing this with any sort of adequate jobs policy, both Democrats and Republicans just, you know, signed NAFTA. They allowed the corporations to, to go elsewhere. They move to the suburbs, they move out to, you know, places like Kenosha or northern parts of Milwaukee, and they don't replace the jobs with anything else but prisons. So instead of factories, now you've got a high incarceration rate, which means that you've got black men who have the highest unemployment gap or or black people have the highest unemployment gap between blacks and whites in uh, Wisconsin than anywhere else in the country. So there's the highest disparity in employment for all rate for all, you know, both black men and women, the highest uh, gap in unemployment for black men in their prime working years. So it's the highest, it's the highest gap 
but they also have like the, the lowest unemployment rate uh, right. or, or joblessness rate as well. You know, so you have all of these kind of economic things that are stirring in the pot. You're not giving them any other yeah. opportunity. You throw them in jail and people are angry. People are rightly angry. They're dying more from COVID. No, there's yeah. no accountability yeah. from either side. And this is under a, a state with a, a Democratic governor. I believe Kenosha has a Democratic mayor. Um, I think Milwaukee also has a Democratic mayor as well. So who's doing, which policymakers are actually doing anything to make sure that black lives actually matter and they don't just tweet it out. So what can the people who are listening to this, what can they do? What should they do right now, today, tonight? Um, you know, some people live nearby. If you are in Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan, um, others don't, um, People want to be involved right now. They want to help. They want to add their voices to the growing chorus. Um, you know, and I'm at, and this is the non-journalist part of you. I'm asking you as a person who's also been an activist and, and a citizen, which actually being a citizen in a democracy should just, you shouldn't have to say activist because it implies you, if the citizenry isn't active, we don't have a democracy. So, so what, can, what can people listen to this do? If you are in the Milwaukee area, I think the community here needs um, physical support. I think just showing that there is uh, concern and empathy for people who just want to see some something happen to the police officer. Physical support, I think, is helpful. Uh, I have not seen protesters really get arrested. You know, in a lot of other cities, they, they've got bail funds and things like that. Um, but there are some organizations, uh, I, I believe it's like uh, Milwaukee Freedom Fighters. They're doing some organizing here. Go to Facebook and follow people like Vaughn Mays or um, Angela Lang, who are doing organizing in the Milwaukee area and are trying to support people out here. Call the, I could give you some links, but there are a number of links that people have shared and telephone numbers to call the Kenosha Police Department, given, again, their seeming complicity with these white terrorists to just inflict violence on people. Uh, I don't know how helpful that's going to be, but I think they, they need to have their, their telephone lines flooded and their emails flooded. Uh, continue to put pressure on them, continue to put pressure on the governor right now, who's apparently listening to Donald Trump's orders to bring the National Guard in today. So contact these elected officials and make them accountable. Apparently, only one, uh, I was at a rally and only one elected official came out, at least according to one of the, the speakers at the rally. He said, this is our only elected official to come out to this. Hmm. So there needs to be some more support for people who are not asking for a lot. They are really asking for the very basic thing. Do not kill me if I've given you absolutely no reason to do so. No real reason to do so. Right. What a what a awful request to make. You know, please just please don't kill me. I want to, you know, I want to just remind people too that um, I've set up a legal defense fund for protesters and others who are involved in this uprising, so that they 
whether they need bail money or whether they need legal help or whatever it is. And I've been working closely uh, with the Lawyers Guild. Um, and um, I think the, probably the bulk of this money is will go directly to them because I think they're the best in terms of making sure every dime is spent the right way and uh, and helping people. You're familiar with them, I'm sure, um, Malika. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so if people want to give to that, it's still here on my, on my uh, podcast uh, site. I think... Um and this is something that I, I think about through my organizing work because it is a seemingly insurmountable problem, you know, with you talking about your experiences, seeing this, the same issues as a child, as someone who studies history. I've seen it historically for decades and centuries. And the question is, essentially, how do you get rid of a white supremacist capitalist system that in every fiber of its being oppresses people, primarily black people, uh, through this racial hierarchy. We, I don't know. I really, I can't pretend like I know the answer or what answers will work because I'm st- we're still experimenting, you know, as, as people who do any sort of activist work. I will say that at least part of, part of it is focusing on policy and, you know, less on trying to change people's minds right. because that will take a lot of undoing that is, that can be entrenched from what you were raised with, with yeah. your families, with, you know, your parents and what your parents yeah. were taught you know, it's inherited. You know, it yeah, is we like don't DNA. we don't have time to change that. I, I'd rather I'd rather go with the fact that I think the majority of humans, majority of people, do have a conscience, do know right from wrong, and are on our side in some form. That that it's only a percentage that is though large, even if it's just twenty percent. That means it's sixty million plus Americans that have these attitudes. It's a lot. Right, right. It's a lot of scary people, a lot of guns. Right. You know, and we're talking about kind of different levels of oppression. There's one where it's very explicit white supremacist violence. Uh, I think that is going to be difficult to figure out. And, you know, people are operating in these underground channels in a way and complicit with the police officers who give them cover. There is another form of, of oppression and violence, for instance, like I mentioned with the COVID disparities built on years of institutional and systemic racism and, and capitalism. And I think those kinds of things come from folks who might be uh, well-meaning saying that they are willing to share in America's wealth. You know, you have a piece of, a, of the American pie. Our culture is very individualistic. So it is going to require a bit of a cultural shift to be able to say, okay, well, you know, I know I've got my home in, in the suburbs that Donald Trump wants me to hold on to, but can I vote for this uh, transit tax so that other people can get around to access the jobs that we've been able to hoard for ourselves? Will I support a candidate who's fighting for Medicare for all? Uh, because so many Black people are dying disproportionately from a lot of these health outcomes. Will I be willing to live in other neighborhoods or willing to share 
my schools with other people so that they can also get the same kind of education that I've been able to receive because of, you know, inherited wealth and inherited home ownership and all the benefits that were bestowed to my family because of the new deal, the GI Bill, all these other things. So there has to be the one cultural shift I could say is not necessarily, you know, how do you undo white supremacy? I think that's a lot, but there has to be a, a different form of just dealing with other people to counter the individualism that is also deeply rooted in America. And this, you know, hold onto private property, you know, the folks who are coming out here are like, we need to defend our property, so we're gonna kill you for that. That's a deeply held belief, even if it's not that, ex that extreme amongst other white Americans, it's a deeply held belief. You know, you wanna have your high property values, so you isolate out to the suburbs and you have white flight. And then you have these segregated communities who then have these ongoing problems. Um, but for folks who are still grappling with that, vote for the people who support those policies. So even if you don't want to li live amongst black people, you don't want to share, at least demand that the government does it. Demand that we have baby bonds. So maybe you want to live, you know, out in the, the suburbs somewhere, but at least support black people being able to get some sort of, of help if Private citizens aren't doing it. Someone, it has to come from somewhere. So support those policies if you can't personally, you know, share share in, in that American dream for everyone else. And what do we do when we see the police trying to kill somebody? Do we stand there while the knee is on the neck? Do we stand by while he pulls out the gun and shoots at point blank range? What do, what do we do? I think if, if you've been a witness, you're paralyzed, certainly, in that moment. And, of course, you want to live. And no one will believe you. They're always going to believe the cops. So, but, event, but eventually, we have to intervene. I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to suggest. I don't, I don't know how to give this advice. But, but um, the police, instead of us being afraid of them, they need to be afraid of us. And I don't mean afraid for their lives. Afraid enough to think, you know what? I shouldn't beat this person. I shouldn't kill this person. I should probably take my knee off their neck. How do we make that happen? I'm, I don't, I'm not asking you for the answer. I'm just saying I'm putting this out into the air here uh, because we all need to think about this and we need to act. Malika. Um, I know you've got to go. You know, you're busy there with what you're doing in Kenosha. Um, thank you for taking this time with me here today on Rumble. Um, I'm so grateful that you're there. You are taking a risk just being there in a time of pandemic. Um, I hope you're staying safe. Please keep pro providing the context of what we're witnessing here. When, when the violence died down in, um, in Portland uh, a week or so ago, so did the coverage, but the protest didn't stop. Everybody's out there every night, but unless they've got a burning building or somebody brandishing a gun, um, they just kind of tend to ignore it. So keep at it. Keep, we're, we'll keep following you. I'll post links of yours. Uh, if you have a chance to go to my um, Twitter feed, I've been reading it here this week. It's very powerful. Uh, what, what's your handle on, on Twitter? And I'll put this on my podcast uh, site here too. Okay, it's at Malika Jabali. Um, oh, why did you make it so complicated? <laughs> uh, 
Sorry, it's at, yes, Malika. Spell Malika for people. M as a Mary, A L A I K A J A B as in boy, A L I. Um, and that's on Twitter. Uh, so just put the at symbol before that. And you can read some incredible um, Twitter commentary uh, as uh, she is there in Kenosha, Wisconsin right now. Thank you. Thank you for the work you've done. Thank you for what you've done for Milwaukee and all the other things. And thank you for pointing out the the, the other viruses that we're facing in terms of capitalism and white supremacy and these things. Uh, they all have to go. They have to go with COVID. They all have got to go. And uh, we'll have a better world, uh, a better country if we do that. So, like a thank you. Please be safe there, okay? Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael, for your work as well. We we really appreciate that. And your focus on the Midwest, well, it's necessary. Well, it, it is uh, it only in the sense that I hope most Democrats have figured out now why um, they lost Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And, um, and to ignore the black communities in these three states is to bring about your ruination. So don't do that uh, this year, Democratic Party, candidates, et cetera. Um, all right. Uh, thank you. And um, um, we're going to move on here with the show, but uh, um, we'll be thinking of you and uh, we'll be reading what you're writing. I appreciate that. Take care. Uh, take care. got to take a minute here to acknowledge a new underwriter, Raycon. These are incredible little earbuds designed and invented by uh, the rapper uh, Ray J. Uh, I'm sure many of you know, a lot of these kind of premium earbuds, they cost a ton of money. And so they're either asking people that maybe don't have, you know, the working people, whatever, don't have the money for this sort of thing. And then putting out a lot of money that they don't need to be putting out on earbuds. And so he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so he invented a, a new way to do it and charge 50% less uh, than these other premium earbuds. His newest model, it's called the Everyday E25 earbuds. And everybody that I know, at least, that have tried them, they said that these are really, they are the same quality of the, the ones that you're paying twice as much money for. You get six hours of playtime, you know, on, on one charge, right? And you get this, you get kind of a noise isolating effect from these. Even though they're little earbuds, they almost, they feel like you've got those, those big cans on the, the headphones that muffle out all sound. These seem to do the same thing. And of course, Ray J is, he's got a number of other people in the music business who are now using his earbuds. Everybody from Snoop Dogg to Cardi B, Melissa Etheridge, so I want to encourage you to give them a look, to thank them for supporting Rumble. And um, here's the way you, you can do that. You go to buyraycon.com slash Rumble. You get 15% off your order and you get to support them and they get to support Rumble. And I want to personally thank Raycon for supporting my voice, supporting Rumble. And that's buyraycon.com slash Rumble.
Welcome back. A few weeks ago on Rumble, we had Alexandra Rojas on our uh, our podcast here. She's the executive director of Justice Democrats. And if you remember, Justice Democrats are the ones who've been working for the last few years to get working class Democrats like AOC and Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush to convince them to run for office and then defeat the old corporate wing of the Democratic Party in primary campaigns. And that is exactly what's happened with those individuals I just mentioned. Um, while she was uh, talking to me here, she mentioned that there was a primary happening on September 1st in Massachusetts, in the first congressional district of Massachusetts, which is Springfield, Holyoke, and that they had another justice Democrat running against uh, an incumbent who has been there for nearly 30 years in Congress by the name of Richard Neal. He is the chairman of the incredibly powerful House Ways and Means Committee. And when it comes to the Democrats that are bought and paid for by lobbyists, this is the guy, especially the healthcare industry. Richard Neal ranks at the top. As a matter of fact, if Neal remains in Congress and remains the chairman of that committee, that's what he'll become if, uh, you know, well, he'll be if the Democrats obviously maintain control and Biden is in the White House, he may be the biggest obstacle in our next Congress, this Democrat, to getting anything good done on health care or these other issues. So Richard Neal is now being challenged by my guest today. In 2011, 22-year-old Alex Morse was elected as the youngest mayor ever in the city of Holyoke, Massachusetts, and he's been re-elected three times since. He's now in his, his I believe, fourth term. Um, now, and he's, uh, now he's at the ripe old age of 31 years old. Uh, he is running against Richard Neal uh, next Tuesday. If Alex Morse wins, this would be the, the next big shocking upset of the powerful incumbent corporate Democrats and another huge victory. I was going to say for the left, but really the majority of Americans want universal health care and they want all these things that Alex Morse stands for. And Richard Neal may say he does, but doesn't. So anyways, after we had Alexander Rojas on, I went ahead and, and we contacted Alex Morse. He is in the thick of a very intense campaign right now. The polls have tightened. And we thought, uh, if you had a few minutes to talk to the hundreds of thousands of you, especially those of you in Massachusetts, but all across the country, of what we can do to help Alex Morse and send him to Congress uh, come next Tuesday. I have with me now on the line, Alex Morse. Alex, how are you? I'm great, Michael. How are you? Good. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time. I know you are running all over the place as we are just days ahead of this of this primary. No, thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to talk about how important this this election is, not just for the people here in the district, but for, for all of us. And well, well, tell us how important is it? Because I, I have a sense it's very important. <laughs> yeah, this is the most important Democratic primary in Congress this year, just given the national implications of this race. And given I'm challenging Congressman Richard Neal, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, and, and every issue from Medicare for All, a single-payer health care system, a Green New Deal, you know, national legalization and financing of, of cannabis and the legalization of marijuana, a wealth tax. I mean, you name the issue, it has to go through the Ways and Means Committee. And he has incredible power, but he's using that power and he's abusing that power on behalf of corporations and special interests that have given him millions of dollars over the last 30 years. And so if we care about these progressive policies, I worry a lot about even a President Biden with a Chairman Neal. 
we will not see this progress that we so desperately need as a country. And here in the district, it's 87 cities and towns, and people are struggling, suffering, I mean, dying in the streets because of lack of access to healthcare from the opioid epidemic. And so people here are ready for accessible leadership. And because I mean, we have a lot of ideological issue-based differences that are critically important, but here in the district, he hasn't had a town hall in over three years. This is wow. a progressive district that Bernie Sanders beat Hillary Clinton in in the Democratic primary in 2016. And so we have a real opportunity to shake up this party and really send a strong message as to what does the future of the Democratic Party look like? I mean, do we want to be bought and paid for by corporate interests or do we want to have an unbought party that actually stands for working people of this country? Give us uh, an example or two of where Congressman Richard Neal's money comes from. Yeah, so right now he's the number one recipient of corporate money in the entire House of Representatives, more than any Democrat and even more than every Republican. Whoa, stop right there. <laughs> number one, more even more than every more Republican. More than any Republican, the number one recipient. Yeah, him and Kevin McCarthy are still going back. They still go back and forth every couple of months, and Kevin McCarthy goes ahead. And you know, sometimes I say he's number one, even when he's number two, to get Richie to say that, well, actually, I'm number two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he has been consistently number one. And this excuse that he uses the money to help other candidates is, is a shame. And it's why when Democrats are in the White House and Democrats have control of Congress that we still can't get transformative change. And so this is a guy, the healthcare industry, I mean, he talks about the opioid epidemic and caring about it, even after taking tens of thousands of dollars from the opioid manufacturers that intentionally fueled this crisis. And then when you look at the specific ways in which he's used his power as chair, Becoming chair in January of 2019, one of the first bills through Ways and Means was to ban people of this country from using the free tax filing service with the IRS after taking money from TurboTax and H&R Block. In October, killing an amendment in the Ways and Means Committee that would have allowed the government to negotiate cheaper drug prescription prices for the American people. And then most notably, in December, after taking $54,000 from Blackstone, a private equity group, he literally single-handedly killed a bill that would have limited surprise medical bills from ambulance from ambulance companies and from hospitals. And so time and time again, I mean, this is a guy that abuses his power on behalf of his corporate donors and tries to mask it as progressive change here in the district. And, and he does it now in the time we're in. He does it now. He, he is on the side of these corporate uh, healthcare industries um, on their side when, can you think of any other time other than a pandemic that we, where we would need to be feeling protected and having our, our health care covered mm. instead of being blocked by a Democrat? Yeah, it's amazing to me that, and, and I said this at the, on the debate stage twice last week, and I mean, if you still can't grasp why health care should be a fundamental human right in the middle of a pandemic where over 40 million Americans have lost their job, I mean, if you think that health care should still be tied to employment, then you are just not, you just don't have what it takes to lead in the urgency of the moment we're in right now as a country. And he continues to take money from big pharma, the healthcare lobby, and we literally have hospitals closing right now in the middle of the pandemic. Inpatient psychiatric hospitals closing, birthing centers closing. In your in district. Of color, in the district. Yeah. And this is a, you know, we have urban communities and then we have incredibly rural parts of the district, hill towns, the Berkshires. And so people are just like crying out and you would never know that we have one of the most powerful members of Congress representing us. And he thinks, I mean, this is a guy that Talks like a Republican. He's talking about austerity measures and the deficit when he came out against Pramila Jayapal's Paycheck Guarantee Act. He came out against a $2,000 a month stimulus payment to the American people. Yeah. You know, I, can I just go back? You mentioned the, uh, the what he did to block 
um, this bill that, you know, the IRS, most Americans don't know this. They have a, a tax service that's free. Uh, they're online, but also you, they'll get you on the phone. Um, but they, it's not publicized. People don't know about it. And it's because of all the money that TurboTax and these other for-profit uh, tax entities have dumped into Neil's uh, campaign and others. Um, but let's, let's, let's continue on. For the people who are listening right now, who are clutching their pearls, <laughs> who are getting the smelling salts out so they don't faint, why is Michael and, and Alex doing this? Why are they? He's a Democrat. We have to get rid of Trump. Don't speak ill of the Democrats. Trump, Trump. <laughs> so, so I think I don't, I don't, don't think we need to make it clear to people that we are with them. We are going to remove Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are voting for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. People are voting with various levels of enthusiasm, but we're voting for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, folks. If I can say this, Alex, and you can just cut me off and jump in. Beating Trump is just half the job. The other half is undoing the damage that not just Trump, but those who came before him have done to the American people. And that's why Joe Biden, Joe Biden needs our help. Joe Biden needs members of Congress. It's, it's not enough just to have AOC and Ilhan and Rashida, you know, now we're going to, we're going to have uh, Jamal and we're going to have a uh, Cory Bush, but we need more. And you, you are one of our last chances. This is one of the last primaries uh, uh, coming up where we can defeat an incumbent Democrat mm. who behaves like a Republican, who is at there at the behest of corporate America and Wall Street. That's not what a true Democrat is. That's not what Franklin Roosevelt or John F. Kennedy, they would never call that a true Democrat. And I just, I think that, you know, in addition to the... You mentioned the private health care that, that, that in the debate where so many of the candidates the, on the Democratic side talked about people's beloved private health care that they got from their employer. Yeah, well, I mean, people, people may like their insurance until they have to use it. Exactly. And, and or for whatever reason, people think that they're always going to have a job from that employer. Mm-hmm. The employer can wake up tomorrow morning, snap his fingers and say, that's the end of your health care. Yep. Or or I'm doubling your deductible. I'm tripling your copay. He has the power. To, why yep. should any human have that power over you? Getting sick, getting sick and being able to get help mm. is a human right. Absolutely. And, and, and you're right. I mean, yeah, we need to we need to elect Joe Biden. But our our democracy and our country and our challenges existed long before Trump. And in many ways, having the same elected officials for three or four decades helped create a culture and environment that allowed for Trump in the first place. And I would remind listeners that it was actually Richard Neal. I mean, Democrats worked tirelessly to take back the House in 2018 with the expectation that we would have basic oversight of this administration. And it was Richard Neal, chair of the Ways and Means Committee, that refused and botched the entire effort to get Donald Trump's tax returns in the first place. I mean, he, he waited I mean, nearly seven months to even write what he calls a strongly worded letter to request them. On top of that, he was the one person in Washington that could request a New York state returns. He refused to do that and gave Trump plenty of time to file a lawsuit. And along with Elliot Engel, Richard Neal's the only other chair of this session that hasn't had a single oversight hearing on any aspect of the Trump administration. And so he has right. been very uh, deliberate from the beginning to work yeah. with Trump. He was yeah. the lead negotiator in the House on the NAFTA 2.0 USMCA that every climate organization came out against. Yeah. It is not enough to be a Democrat today. And that's why I'm so excited to go to Congress, join the Progressive Caucus, 
Lloyd Doggett, a member of the Progressive Caucus, is the likely chair of the Ways and Means Committee. He's one of the good guys. Compare it to Congressman Neal, who supports Medicare for All and a Green New Deal and a wealth tax, everything that Congressman Neal has vocally been against. This is so important, um, those of you who are listening, that we send people like Alex Morris uh, to Congress because it isn't just going to, it's one person, Joe Biden, is not going to maybe be able to make this happen on his own. We need, we need, I mean, Elliot Engel, you mentioned, another 30-year member of Congress, long in the tooth, a Democrat, uh, head of, powerful head of the Foreign Affairs uh, Committee, defeated this summer by Jamal Bowman, a middle school principal who ran against him and brought him down. Engel represents uh, parts of Westchester County and the Bronx. And, um, you know, and of course, Cory Bush, the Ferguson activist who in St. Louis ran and won the primary against a 50-year family dynasty there with the Clays, father and son. Over 50 years, they've controlled that seat. She won. But for all the people who think that this can't happen, how could Cory Bush, I mean, what if, if you live elsewhere around the country, you may only know her because she was one of the people that stood for 400 straight days after Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, mm-hmm. stood there, stood with a sign, organized, organized, organized. Alex, you ran for office when you were, what, 21, 22 years old. Yeah, right? 21 when I announced my campaign for 21 mayor, yeah. when you announced. <laughs> uh, now, I ran when I was 18. And got elected. So I know something about running as a as, as a young person. <laughs> but now that you're old and you're in your 30s, I know. <laughs> uh, it, it 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 it. What has this campaign been like? I mean, we've read the stuff in the New York Times and other places where it seems like supporters of Neil have tried to smear you. And I'm, I don't want to get into a whole lot of this because we only have a little bit of your time. But let me just yeah. tell the people listening to this: uh, if, if you don't if you don't mind yeah, me outing yeah, you, uh, Alex is gay. Uh, do I have that part oh, uh, correct? You really yes. blew my cover there. <laughs> Sorry about that. If Alex's parents are listening, please uh, send all the love. <laughs> I've never let them read the news for the last 15 years. <laughs> so, so okay, so Alex is gay. And and so there were these people purporting to be uh, college Democrats or whatever they were. But what it turned out, and you could read this investigative, this incredible investigative report in The Intercept. You can go online and read it. That... that they were essentially were colluding to try and smear you, Alex. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's sickening to read some of this stuff because they peddled in the old uh, bigoted homophobic tropes and stereotypes about single gay men. Mm-hmm. Just tell me and tell us uh, because now uh, the New York times has written this great story yeah. saying, of course, you're vindicated. Of course, this was a lie. And it was a lie perpetrated by people hoping to work mm-hmm. to get jobs on Capitol Hill uh, with the Neil uh, uh, apparatus. Yep. Uh, just give us give us the, the just a minute or two uh, version of this uh, so that people who have read about it and may have questions. Yeah, and, and thank you for bringing it up because this is exactly what people don't like about politics. And sometimes we think these tactics are exclusive to the Republican Party and They're obviously not. I mean, this is establishment Democrats doing what they can to to damage a a likely progressive campaign three weeks before. And this was three weeks before the most competitive election that Richard Neal has ever been in. And again, yes, this was college Democrats. I got this email saying I had it was incredibly vague email, but also as salacious as possible. And then we come to find out that the email itself wasn't written by college Democrats, but written by 
an attorney for the Massachusetts Democratic Party who happens to also be a donor to Congressman Neal that was then published anonymously in the UMass student newspaper saying I had made college students feel uncomfortable and I was disinvited from College Democrats events. Mind you, I have been to one College Democrats event throughout the duration of this campaign and then come to find out every day that passed that the folks involved were actually trying to curry favor with Richard Neal, secure a job and an internship, and were deliberately looking for me on dating apps to try to entrap me in a, in a salacious conversation, which didn't happen. They showed a screenshot, and I was essentially saying, I'm marching in a parade today in North Adams. Um, hope you had a good weekend. And, and then we come to find out, again, that the Massachusetts Democratic Party leadership was involved in crafting the letter, and they had been shopping this story around to national publications that refused to do anything with it because wow. there was nothing credible there. And so yeah. I will say, I mean, the impact on me, on our team, on our supporters, I mean, we are stronger today than we were three weeks ago in terms of fundraising, volunteer signups, local elected officials, getting inspired to get off the sidelines and endorse this campaign. We're now within just a few points uh, with 13% undecided. And we literally just outraised Congressman Neal in the most recent reporting period. Mm. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. all people powered. So wow. it seems like they're, they're coordinated. Looks like they failed. Attack didn't, didn't work. And they thought it would work because if they put the name, if they made up a name, college uh, Democrats, and they had the money behind it from this Massachusetts Democrat. I hate that. This is in Massachusetts, people. I know I, you were saying, what? I thought you said Arkansas. No, this <laughs> is in Massachusetts where they decided that the way they had to go after you was over your gayness and that your gayness made them, what they say in the fake letter, nervous? Yeah, I just, it, it was really hard for me to, I know, I would just, it, it was, it's, I remember reading it and it was just. What year is this? It's incredibly problematic too, because I read it and, you know, I'm human too. So I read, you know, you made someone feel uncomfortable and I'm thinking, well, who? And then I'm thinking, well, if I did, I, I, I apologize. I regret that. And I think any human should respond that way. And that's what I did initially and said, happy to chat and want to make this right. And then to come to find out that number one, no response to that uh, invitation to have a conversation. Then number two, to find out that no one was in fact uncomfortable. Instead, there was this month long plot to try to entrap me to damage my campaign and my prospects against the congressman in collaboration with the Massachusetts Democratic Party. And then just the language that was used in response to these events, you know, the use of words like predator and you know, right, abuser right. and so on Dang and it. so forth. I mean, Dang it wasn't it. just an attack on me, but yeah. the entire queer community. I mean, the influx yeah. of people in the LGBT community that reached out. It's like, yeah. I got into public life at 21. I started teaching a class occasionally at UMass at 25. I mean, I am mayor, whether I'm at City Hall, the grocery store, out and about. And and I've been very consistent about, like, we shouldn't ha- we, we should be able to be un- unapologetically ourselves. Like, I will not apologize for being mm-hmm. young and gay and single and mm-hmm. occasionally using gay dating apps and having consensual adult relationships. And no- nor should we set a standard where young people, single people, gay people feel like they, they have to choose between running for office or having a life. So you've just admitted that you have been consistently gay. Is this correct? Well, consistently gay since... Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, my entire life. I mean, that's the one thing I've been right. consistent about, I guess. <laughs> well, this, I'm telling you, this letter and this smear, I, I, and that it would come from Democrats. But why I sound like I have surprise in my voice. Uh, look, obviously, there are so many good Democrats and so many uh, yeah. good people are part of all this. But this, this kind of ugliness, because they are so afraid of you unseating next Tuesday, one of the top, top party hacks who's been there for three decades and that you would come along, that you're raising more money than him, that they must, their heads are spinning and they don't know what to do. And they thought, let's play the gay card. 
mm-hmm. and hope that works. Mm-hmm. In a Democratic primary, they think that Democrats, liberals, are going to go to the polls on Tuesday and somehow take the bait, take the bigoted bait that they put out there. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, hats off to you and everybody and to the intercept for the story they did, to the New York times for using the word vindicated. Um, yeah. But, and I, but, have, I mean, I saw that New York times article. I, they did a much better job than I will tell you a number of local media here in the district. Yeah. Well, but you know, look here, we we've got, what do we've got? We, we have like six days here. Uh, it's yeah, not, six more days. Part of the it's countdown. Not, it's, yeah. It's not much here. So tell us what people who are listening to this right now, <clears throat> They're listening all over the world, but they're, they're mostly in the United States. But somebody's listening to this right now in Kansas City. Mm. Somebody is listening to this right now in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, you know, they're almost 3,000 miles away from you. What can they do? What can I do? What can people do right now? Because we want you to win yeah. next Tuesday. We want change in this country. We need you to be there with the squad, with Jamal, with yeah. everybody else that it's going to turn things around. And, and we desperately need that change. And I'm so proud to have the support of Jamal Bowman. And just yesterday, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, and her PAC, Courage to Change, endorsed this campaign. And so we have a lot of momentum. And I look forward to the joining the squad, joining the Progressive Caucus. And with six days left, we need all the help we can get just this morning. Tell us what that help is. Tell yeah, us what just it this is. morning, a PAC on behalf of Congressman Neal did a half a million dollar ad buy to run negative ads against me in the in the coming days. And so we need to make up that gap, make sure we have the resources to, to compete on air, on TVs, at the mailboxes of folks across the district. And I would encourage people to go to alexmorseforcongress.com. Uh, again, alexmorseforcongress.com. Chip in a few bucks, 97% of our contributions are $200 or less. Compare that to less than 1% of the congressman's donations that come from grassroots contributions $200 or less. And so we know we can win on Tuesday. He may have millions from corporations, but what he doesn't have is just everyday people, the working class people of this district and this country that are driven by values, mm. not driven by obligation right. and, and loyalty. We're, we're loyal to our values and to working people and to middle class mm. families of the district to actually make a difference. And, and as you noted, I got into public service as a 21-year-old. I grew up in poverty Neither of my parents had the opportunity to graduate from high school or go on to college. My dad still works at the same meatpacking plant in Springfield that he started at 34 years ago. And we need to have a body in a Congress that looks like and has a lived experience of the vast majority of people in this country. And Congressman Neal fails to meet the moment on every single issue that is important in our time. And it's a completely different time than it was in 1988. We have different challenges that require a completely different magnitude of solutions. And so for those listening encourage you to, again, just visit our website, chip in a few bucks. If you want a phone bank from wherever you are, you can join us. Uh, we're going to obviously be getting out the vote this weekend through election day, calling undecided voters. How do we do How do we join your phone bank? How do we do that? I would go to, um, go to alexmorrisforcongress.com, click on volunteer, go to alexmorrisforcongress.com slash vote. There's opportunities to, to sign up to volunteer for get out the vote shifts uh, this upcoming weekend. If, if, if people didn't uh, aren't able to write that down right now while you're listening, that's okay. Just I'll have these links on my podcast site. You just go there and you can click and you can click to donate. You can click to join the phone banking uh, effort uh, this weekend. What if people live, say, within three or four hours of Western Massachusetts? That's a lot of people, by the way, including New York City mm. and, and its area. What, what can... Um, what can people do who may just want to come there yep. this weekend um, and help you? And by, and by the way, you know, 
these days, the weekend is every day. Yeah, so, well, and, and I'll tell you, early voting started last Saturday, so every day is election day through Tuesday. Um, although early voting will end on Friday, and then for people that haven't voted by mail or early by Friday night, we'll have to vote in person on Tuesday. But for folks that are in the area, in New England, in Massachusetts, you know, feel free to come to Holyoke, come to Springfield. We have shifts at all the voting locations uh, throughout the district. Again, there's 87 cities and towns. It's almost a third of Massachusetts. The land area is the biggest district in the state. And it's a beautiful district. It's a diverse district. And so if you come, we will put you to work talking to voters, persuading voters as they walk into the, the voting booth, making sure they know about our campaign and what we're so if they, if they drive if they drive to Holyoke or Springfield, where do they how do they find you? Um, so we're at uh, it's fifteen forty eight Northampton Street in Holyoke or one sixty four Race Street in Holyoke. For those on the Berkshires, we have a, a field office uh, attached to Dottie's uh, Coffee Shop in Pittsfield um, on Front Street. Uh, it's one of the most popular coffee shops downtown, and so we'll be staging out of a number. How's of the, how's the coffee? Um, it's delicious. They also okay. have fire uh, fire cider. If you want to cleanse your, um, yeah, cleanse your, <laughs> cleanse your stomach and your navel cavities, <laughs> they're actually known uh, for it. So the uh, so um, and 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 for people who are worried about, especially if they're older people that want to help you, just mm-hmm. the the uh, coronavirus safety protocols that you have in place yep. for people that want to come and help. Just explain that briefly. Yeah, our campaign manager has a master's in public health, and so we're very intentional about protecting voters, protecting our volunteers and protecting our team. And so we have, everybody has masks on at all times. Uh, we hand out gloves. We give masks to people that don't have them. Uh, we have sanitizer. We follow all of the protocols. We are doing some socially distant and safe canvassing. You know, we're going through, you know, housing projects and residential facilities outside, you know, meet the candidate, our, our endorsers, our, our supporters, and just encouraging people to you know, providing transportation, encouraging people to, to go vote. And so we'll be doing door knocking and phone banking throughout the weekend. And then all day on Tuesday, we'll be, we'll just be in every corner of the district. And so the more bodies, the better, the more voters we'll talk to, and it will make a difference in a close race like this. What's the maximum legal maximum that people can uh, donate to a primary in a congressional race? The maximum that one person can give for the primary is $2,800. Two thousand eight hundred dollars. Okay, um, I can do that. So I, I will when this podcast uh, we're done recording, um, I will send the maximum legal limit uh, to you. I encourage everybody who's listening who can send twenty five dollars, fifty dollars, uh, the smallest amount can help. Right now, we are up against a behemoth here um, with Richard Neal and with the old, old, old party structure that knows its days are over, that knows that the average age of the average American is 37 years old. And, and we, the young people, we need them in Congress. We, is, we say it's their future. They're in their future right now. And it looks pretty piss poor. So I'm, I'm so grateful that you've, chosen to run, Alex. I want to give that address again, and I want to spell your last name so people uh, don't uh, think it's, that you, yeah, you and I are like related. Yes, Morse <laughs> like the Morse code, not more like Michael Moore. Alex Morse, M-O-R-S-E for Congress that spell out the four. Don't put a four-letter number in there. Alex Morse for Congress.com. And Alex, uh, I'm going to just give the final minute or so here to you. Uh, Let's tell people, tell people exactly you're going to, you'll take office on January 1st, 2nd, whatever the first day is there mm-hmm. before the inauguration. Um, what are you going to do? What is your mission there? What are you going to start with? What are you going to push for? And who are you going to join with to see that we get these things that we, the people need? 
Mm, absolutely. And I, and I just can't wait. I'm incredibly excited to, to join with AOC and Jamal Bowman and, and members of Congress like Pramila Jayapal and Ro Khanna and Ayanna Presley. We're going to continue to grow the Progressive Caucus. We'll have a progressive as a chair of the Ways and Means Committee in a Democratic administration and hopefully a Democratic Senate. And that's why down-ballot races right now are so critically important. I will immediately sign on to uh, Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All uh, bill in the House, which is even more expansive than the Sanders bill in the Senate, in that it also provides funding for health centers and hospital infrastructure in rural parts of our country, uh, like Western Massachusetts. Uh, sign on to Ayanna Pressley's Breathe Act to combat you know, police brutality and police violence um, and, and those issues in our community. And the opioid epidemic in particular is incredibly personal to me. Um, my, you know, my brother Doug recently passed away from a heroin overdose and we have a healthcare system oh, geez, that- I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Just, I mean, it just, we have a broken healthcare system that doesn't treat mental illness, doesn't treat addiction, and it is playing out in the lives of countless Americans in every corner of, of our country. And, and so I am just like, incredibly excited and honored to, to have mounted this campaign, um, honored to even have this conversation with you, and, and thank you for the work um, and values you fought for for so long, and uh, really looking forward to closing this over the next six days, and it would just be an honor to, to not just represent the people here of the district, but people in every corner of this country that are crying out for real progressive leadership, and most importantly, a Democratic Party that actually stands for people, not for special interests and corporations. Alex, I wish you the best of luck. Um, I'm there uh, with you. Um, I will um, send in my contribution immediately. I will join the phone banking uh, this weekend. And folks listening to this, come on. This primary on Tuesday, Tuesday, September 1st, is so critical. As Alex said, th- th- this is more important than any of the other primaries that we've been trying to remove these these pro-corporate Democrats because he's he's on the committee that does all the overseeing of all the disbursement of the funds, of the tax dollars, and has the most lobbyists in his ear, in his in his pocket, or I think he's in their pocket. They're in both each, they're in each other's pockets. They've become oh, one. <laughs> they have become one. And this is another one we can win. This is another one. This is come on. We need to rise out of our despair. And, and support Alex in whatever way you can, no matter where you live across this country. Please do this. Please do this. This is so important. Go to alexmorseforcongress.com. I have the links on my site. If you forget that, just go to it there um, and, and support him. Uh, we, we have no choice at this point. And Alex, mayor of Holyoke, friend of people in Springfield, uh, if anybody who lives near Western Massachusetts can go there, please do that. I'll put those addresses on my, on my site here too. If you just want to get in the car and go there. Um, this is a great moment for us right now in these next six days. Um, please participate. Alex, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to everybody up there in Western Mass, uh, who are supporting you and to the rest of the country. We are going to get out there and get behind you because we know we have numerous jobs. We have to flip the Senate. We have to remove the man who shall not be mentioned. And we have to get you, you, Alex, in Congress. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much, Michael. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and an honor to, to chat with you. No, no. Uh, the honor's mine and for the people that are listening. Uh, thank you. Take care. And that's it for this episode of Rumble. I want to thank everybody for uh, tuning in today. 
Uh, don't forget to give to the Legal Defense Fund. The link is on our podcast uh, platform page here. Uh, click and give just whatever little bit of money you want to help those who are being arrested and harassed by the police uh, because they're out in the streets standing up for, for you and I. Um, also, uh, don't forget, uh, we are going to find out about whether uh, our, we've crossed the 15 million mark. We're verifying things. So I think we have got some good news uh, coming in the next uh, podcast. Uh, uh, we've been approaching our 15 millionth download of Rumble uh, since we began uh, a number of months ago. So thank you, everybody who has tuned in for that. Don't forget to send me an email. I read my email. It's mike at michaelmore.com. And leave me a, a voice message. You can click the link right here on the podcast page. You got one minute to talk to me. I can't call everybody back, but I really do love hearing what you have to say about this podcast. And if there's something you want to say to a few hundred thousand people listening to it, there's your chance. So just click on that voicemail link uh, to me here at Rumble. I want to thank our executive producer, Basil Hamden, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, everybody else who's been a supportive uh for putting together today's episode from the first district of Wisconsin in Kenosha and the first district of Massachusetts there in Holyoke and Springfield. Uh, it's been, in, uh, to me, uh, an important day here uh, to bring this, to bring this information to you and to think about what we're all going to do, whether it's in the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin, or whether it's next Tuesday at the polls in Western Massachusetts. The power is in our hands. It's up to us to use it. Thanks, everybody. I'll talk to you soon. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble.